Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and as always, I have my good friend Benjamin Hunting here to talk to me. Ben, say hi to the people. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. In case this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. You can find my work at autoguide.com as well as the Autoguide YouTube channel. You can also find Ben's work at Autoguide, but he he likes to diversify. And you can find his work at autotrader.ca as well as New York Daily News and Haggerty. Is that it, Ben? Uh, there's a whole bunch of other ones, too. If you're curious, there's Autoblog and there's Auto123 and there's Auto This and there's Auto That and there's Auto Everything. <laughs> And this week we have a bunch of, um, we have a pair of really fun cars and one um, really practical one. So, Ben, why don't you take it away? I think you've got the interesting story this week with some um, really wild cars that I have no experience of what they're like to drive. Go. So, this week, uh, actually, just a few short days ago, I went down to Virginia International Raceway where I met up with a company called Formula Experiences. And what these guys do is they put you behind the wheel of several different race cars. And I mean real race cars. We're not talking about a streetcar that's been converted to a race car or even um, a factory streetcar conversion. These are Radical Racers, which is a, Radical is a company that's based in England, and they make... I guess the best way to describe them would be miniature form of uh, LMP cars, Sammy. Would that kind of having seen them, does that seem like what they would look like to you? It's it's like it's an open cockpit race mm -hmm. car. They make one and two seats, uh, seat versions. They have a variety of different power plants, and they have that kind of they're they're a full downforce car, so they have a full aerodynamic treatment that gives you fairly copious amounts of downforce when you're driving at high speeds and and it you really notice it when you're out there uh and they also have a Liger f4 car that's part of the uh, formula experiences package and i got to drive all three of those sammy oh my god okay so i don't know i i don't know a lot about that Liger Liger. um i think i know a little bit about radicals there's like a couple of different versions of them right there's the sr1 two and three no sr one, three, and eight. Yes, that's 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 numbers. right. Yeah, there. So, so yeah, I, I don't know. They skipped a few, I guess. <laughs> the uh, the SR one, it's 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 bo both the SR one and the SR three are powered by motorcycle engines, and Ooh. they're they're different in size. The SR one is smaller and it has just under two hundred horsepower, but the SR three is a two seater and it has about two hundred twenty five two hundred thirty five horsepower. And they okay. both have sequential motorcycle transmissions that you – there's a clutch that you use to pull away from a stop. But after mm -hmm. that, you just shift with paddles on the steering wheel. Uh, so okay. it's, it's clutchless operation. And the you've got you've to bear with me. The Liger? Yeah, it, it's a four-cylinder. Is, is that how you pronounce it? It's L-I-G-I-E-R. So I say Liger. I, that's, that's how it works in my mind. It's powered okay. by a K20 Civic engine. Oh, and okay. it weighs almost nothing. Like it's it's a open wheel formula car, uh, single single passenger obviously, uh, open cockpit, and it is it, it's it's as close as I think I'll ever get to driving something like an Indy car. Obviously, it has way less horsepower, but it's also fairly light. Okay, so you drove these. How did you drive these cars? From I mean, I have driven an open wheel race, actually a couple of open wheel cars, um, and they require um, what's the best word for it. Some training. They just—they really do. They really require you to have like an open mind and then to absorb a lot of information at once and then try to figure it out, try to dissect each little bit of information to make sure you can go around the, the track fast and safe, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, it really, the, the if you want to start with the formula car, we, we can. Um, okay. It's, it's the car I like the least out of the group because, oh. Because not necessarily because of how it drives, but because the fact of when you're in a formula car, you're lying down inside the car. Your legs, they extend all the way into the nose cone of the car where the wing is attached. The pedals are at the very, very end. And there's almost no space in the car either. You're you're really, really, really tight in it uh, for safety reasons and just because it's a small vehicle. But you're you're kind of very exposed to anything bad that could happen to you. If you have an accident in a formula car, mm -hmm. your feet are going to take the brunt of that. And it's a really unsettling experience. <laughs> At least for me, I I, I had never um 
I've never driven one before. I've said that a million times so far in this podcast. But your head is just sticking up from the cockpit, and you have somewhat of a limited field of, of view behind you. You have, you have mirrors on the wing pods kind of deal. Mm-hmm. But uh, the wheels just stick out super far. And it has a really bad turn radius, and I know that because I spun the car a couple times at low speeds. Oh, and okay. and I to get it back on the track, I had to drive it through grass because there was no way to get it to turn tight enough. And I kept wondering if I was going to get it stuck <laughs> in the grass because okay. I'm on racing slicks. I never did get it stuck, but it's it's a car that's not very fast in a straight line, but in mm. the corners it can carry so much speed. It's really really impressive just because of how light it is and how wide the track of the car is. It's okay. such a different experience from a street car. It it feels planned. But you have to have a lot of trust in the aero and a lot of trust in the wheels, sorry, in the tires themselves in terms of grip, because the sensation on a racing slick is there's very little warning when something goes wrong. You don't get it. It doesn't squeal. It doesn't kind of get uh, squirrely before it loses traction. It just loses traction. So I found it hard to deal with that type of lack of communication from the car combined with the vulnerability that I felt while I was in it. And I only drove it about six or seven laps before I came in and parked it. And I just told them that, like, look, this this type of car is not for me. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about this car before we switch to the Radicals. I've, I have driven a um, an open-wheel race car, uh, too, uh, but I've driven the Van Diemen. They're called Formula SCCA. Um, cars. I drove this on the Bridgestone Racing Academy, and we didn't have the same kind of tires as you. But I, too, spun my car. And what was funnier is I spun it when I was feeling the most confident with it. I honestly started thinking I was getting in a groove. I was like, this is working out really well for me. I think I finally, like, I think I finally understand what it's like to drive a car like this. And then suddenly I was facing the wrong way, <laughs> and it didn't make any sense. These cars require such immense focus. And uh, at least that's what I found. I don't know. You're maybe more of a natural than I am, so you I don't gotta know. Tell me how, what what that experience is like. Well, you know, it's I don't know if it's a question of being a natural. I think that my track experience, which has to this point been entirely in street cars or street cars converted to race cars, I don't know how much of that carries over to a formula car because it's so light. I mean, even the mm-hmm. Radical, the SR1 is just over a thousand pounds, and the SR3 is maybe a hundred and fifty pounds heavier than that. So those are extremely light cars. That's half the weight of a Miata. Right. And the the Ligier is lighter than that. So, I mean, these are minimum weights, right? Like, it doesn't <laughs> include the driver and, and, and yeah. liquids and, sorry, fluids and whatnot. But uh, it's... The, the whole idea of the Ligier is that it's a momentum car, which means mm-hmm. that you try to brake as little as possible because you have the because it's so light, you can continue to maintain a huge amount of speed in the corners and, and you don't have to accelerate as hard on the straights because you've been able to maintain that speed. So the, the low power doesn't make as much of a difference. But the, the key to that entire enterprise is trusting that you can maintain that speed in the corners. Like that's a yeah. that's a really big mental block. And like for me, coming from a streetcar even my Datsun is 2,500 pounds, roughly. Mm. Uh, that's not heavy at all. And and still, like, just feeling so exposed, I, I was never able to push myself to that edge. But I, okay. I don't want to. I don't want to dwell too much on what I wasn't able to do at Formula Experiences yeah. because um, the Radicals were absolutely amazing. Okay, the, yeah, talk to me about these Radicals. The SR1 was by far my favorite. It, even though it had less power than the SR3, it was lighter. And um, what was interesting was on the long straight, we drove Virginia International's south course. And on the long uphill straight, it could easily pull on the SR3 coming out of the corner because it was just able to accelerate better. Okay. Uh, and where where the SR3 would pull away is it has a wider track. And it, it was it, it's more it was grippier in, in some ways. And it could maintain speed better through... Uh, complex corners or combination corners whatever you want to call it so it was an interesting balance to have those cars out on the track together and the way the event was set up was we just there were, there were only six of us at formula experiences it's not really a driving school it's i mean the word experience is in the name the idea is to get people who've never been in a race car like me but more accurately people who are journalists uh, the chance to do a bucket list thing and and check off race car on a racetrack and it's honestly feels like you're just hanging out at a track with a bunch of your friends driving super cool, cool cars with really fun people. That's um, awesome. Yeah, it's it's you know how I mean you've been to a bunch of driving schools and you know there's a lot mm. of there's a heavy classroom component and they're often very regimented and um, the sessions are you know you're on 20 minutes on 20 minutes off an hour on hour off kind of deal. This yep. was the night before we got there. 
we went through what it was like to be in the cars. We went through some classroom theory for people who maybe aren't familiar with things like apexes, braking zones, weight transfer, all that kind of stuff. And then we actually took a night ride at VIR in an SR3 with uh, as a passenger with the owner of the school, Peter Heffring, who's a, a, a radical racer as well. He... Um, he he put these light bars on it, the SR has headlights, but he put a second set of light bars on the roll bar, okay. <laughs> and then we just took off and did like full speed <laughs> laps in complete darkness, which I've never done in a race car before, and it was fairly exhilarating. Uh, that's that's something you're not really going to be able to do at most racetracks because they don't usually ever operate after dark. Right. Um. But uh, then the next day we show up at the track and we were split into two groups and they did lead follow. Which isn't really an issue. I know some people out there are like, oh, lead follow, that's terrible. I'm a pro driver and I'm amazing. You know what? Um, if, if you've never driven a radical and the guy ahead <laughs> of you in the radical is a professional radical racer, you're probably never going to catch him or you're mm-hmm. probably not going to push him too hard. I, I was able to stay with him for most parts of a session. He drove at my ability, which I really appreciated, and I had a lot of fun. Uh, and I had, and the, the, the lead follow session, sometimes it was just you and the, and the instructor. It was, there was no other cars on it. Yeah. It was because not everyone, you know, wanted to go out for every session. Some people wanted to take a break and, and it was cool if you wanted to do that, you weren't penalized for that. So Mm -hmm. there'd be between one and three cars in a given session and you would, you go out for five laps, you'd come in and, uh, they do a check with you and say, how was that? Is everything cool? And then you just go back out again from pit lane. Um, and uh, I, the SR1, I mean, it's it's $60,000. There was an engineer, Reese, from Radical, who came. He's been in the U.S. for six months with Peter and the Formula Experiences crew to set up the Radicals to teach the team how to maintain them and to kind of help Radical build its brand in the U.S. Because they have racing series all over the world for the SR1 and the SR3. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the U.S., not many people know about these cars. The SR1 is $60,000, and it does 0 to 60 in like three and a half seconds. Woo! Yeah, and it That's- has... That'd be the best, the best, the probably the lowest price car to do that kind of. <laughs> yes, it it and it also it, it has a top speed of just under 140 miles an hour, mm-hmm. and um you can run an entire season on a single set of brake pads. Ooh. And it uses almost no tire as well, just because it's so light. So, it, it, if you were to look at any street car that's out there that's oriented to the track, like a Corvette Z06, um mm-hmm. or something from BMW, you're going to be paying probably 40 oh to God. 50 grand more. Minimum. Not to mention, not to mention the cost of the tires on those kinds of cars. Oh, for sure. Um, and how quickly those can wear out. Just because you know what, these are like three times the weight of this radical, and that's a lot of pressure that you're putting on um, the brakes and the tires. No matter exactly. how much, no matter how much they say those cars are like race prepped, you know, you can't you can't avoid that kind of physics. No, and and that physics brings a lot of heat into the equation too. So yeah. uh, that can also be it can be hard on the car over the long term. So uh, the the SR3, which is the larger, more powerful radical, is around a hundred thousand dollars. I think it might be a hundred and twenty. Ooh, that's uh, a bit pricey. Yeah, well, it, you're you're getting a, a more capable car. It felt a lot more like a street car in terms of how it was driving. This particular one was on street tires. The okay. SR1 was on slicks, and uh, I felt it was a it was it communicated well. Um, it would get out of shape from time to time, and I would easily be able to catch it. And I, I trusted it, and I think that's important in in a in a car like that. It also has two seats, so if you're, you know, um, if you want to drive with a club, you'll often have to do a checkout ride, or maybe you're just starting out in in time trials or in high performance driving experiences, and you're going to have to have an instructor beside you. So it's uh, if you only have one seat, you can't do that. <laughs> so that's a, that's a, a consideration for some people. But um, I, I was totally enamored of the SR1. If, if I was to take a car, it would be that. Um, how much does it cost to run this program, and how often is it running? So it depends on what you want to do. There are, there are three different versions. There's a bronze, a silver, and a gold package. But the the basic package is $1,500, and you get okay. two driving sessions uh, in the cars. So you'll probably get 40 minutes to an hour of racetrack driving. The silver package doubles that. Um, and the gold package, as they call it, is $26.95. And that gives you six sessions, a full day. Uh, you also get to drive your own car on the track if you want to, Ooh. which a number of people did, which was cool. Um, it includes your meals. And it also, all three of those packages, they give you simulator training. They have full motion simulators. So before we went out in the Radicals, we were able to drive the track in the Radical in iRacing. 
uh, on a, on an iRacing rig. And they, were, they have oh, a lot man. of them. Like you can, it's not like wait your turn. There were four or five of them. And some of them are full motion, some of them aren't. So some people are susceptible to motion sickness in a simulator and they, they don't want to s- subject you to that if they have to. Sorry, mm-hmm. if they if they don't have to. Um, so that, you know, that's not a ton of money for someone who's at the point where maybe they're considering buying a Radical or maybe this is a gift to themselves. They've always wanted to do this. I mean... It, it, bringing your own car to the track is going to cost you minimum between three to five hundred dollars. So the fact that you're showing up at a track, there's a prepped race car ready for you, and you're getting instruction for fifteen hundred minimum. That's mm-hmm. really not that bad at all. Um, the other thing I like about it is it kind of fills a gap between traditional racing schools and uh, high performance driving events. This is kind of a thing for you. You get to try it out. See if you like it. You don't have any skin in the game in the sense that it's not your car, but you also don't right. have to sit through classroom sessions that are teaching you to do something maybe you don't want to do. Maybe you don't really care to become a race car driver. You just want to do it for this one day. Right. That's cool. I'm into that. And uh, it's definitely... Can you tell me a little bit more about VIR? Is it the first time you've driven on it? Yeah, it was. It was the first time. I didn't drive the whole course. It was the south okay. course. And what do you think of the what do you think of the facilities there? It's very cool. They have a. Uh, I stayed at the track. They have these villas that are uh, along the track, and they also have pit lane uh, villas, which are. And it's like a luxury villa thing too. I, I didn't see those, but I saw the the one I stayed in was fine. Um, it's like a, a hotel room essentially. And if you want to stay on pit lane and have your, you can actually sleep above your garage where your car is, which is kind of cool. Um, and there was there was a when I got there there were motorcycle races on the track. They they have a bunch of different facilities. There, there's like a skeet shooting range and. Uh, a spa and all sorts of stuff to do if like you're there with a family member and maybe they're not so into cars they can hang out and do stuff right um it's it's a pretty neat uh, it's a pretty neat facility it's in the middle of nowhere there's like absolutely nothing near it i i drove i flew into raleigh durham airport or raleigh durham airport i always say it wrong and it's about an hour and a half from there to vir vir is just on the other side of the border with north carolina okay cool um anything else you want to add before we go to the next uh topic here well, I, I just want to say, I guess uh, now I'm kind of shopping for a Radical. Oh, right. <laughs> which is, Already. Which is not something I expected. I well, was, I mean, it's very impressive. Uh, is there any way you can, you know, there, I've seen kit cars for like Miatas, like that. There's something called an Exoset, I believe. Yeah. Is. So I actually had this car. Bradley Iger, our guest last week, was talking mm-hmm. with me about the Exoset in comparison to the Radical because they're really cheap. They're like ten grand, I think, for the kit. Six grand can, for the kit. Sorry. Can we just let's just describe the the Exoset because I learned about this maybe two years ago and I thought I, you know, at the time I thought I knew everything, but this Exoset is a very bizarre vehicle. It's like a kit car based on a Miata. It kind of looks like a. Am I mistaken? It looks like a. An it looks Adam like in a wing. Yeah, it looks like an aerial Adam. It's like a skeleton car with a wing, and the mm. and you put an LS engine in the front, oh and God. it's really fast for like twenty. You don't grand, have to put an LS engine in it, do you? Why well, I, I I don't know. I, the ones I've seen have them. Um, for twenty grand, you get a complete car, and for six, you get the kit. But I want to emphasize something. An Exoset is not necessarily comparable to a Radical because a Radical is a full down downforce car with a full body that's been engineered for a specific purpose. The Exoset is a kit you build yourself or have someone else build that's not at the same level. And it also, the, the Radical is a, is a mid-engine car, and that's a huge difference when you're out on a racetrack. Oh, okay. So, I, I, you know, I don't see them as comparable. I see them as two different ways to achieve the same thing, but I don't think that it's like, oh, the the Exocet is the poor man's Radical. I, I don't really know. There's, there's not too many comparisons to the Radical um, that are out there. I think if you look at something like the Mono BAC, right. which is extremely expensive, right. probably another 50 grand on top of an SR3. But the, I mean... It, it's very fast. There's there's also I didn't get to drive one. They had one there, uh, the SR8, which is an eight cylinder version of the Radical. That's very expensive as well. And and the way they were described to me was, um, the SR8 is very difficult to drive unless you're full out all the time. That's how it's intended to be driven. And the way they've structured them is the S. You go from the one to the three to the eight. And once you've mastered each of them, you're 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 able to drive the eight full out. But if you try to drive it slowly, it's a huge handful. Okay. Uh, the, because a lot of that has to do, I believe, with the downforce. Because the faster you go in a radical, the better it sticks to the ground. And that's pretty amazing. That's that's again a thing you'll rarely find in a streetcar. There's one more car, and I'm not sure if it's still in production. It's called the KTM. I think it's called the Crossbow. I think that's the, bro- the proper way to write it. 
Is this? A, I don't know if it's even available in North America, but this is another like sort of um, stripped out sports car that I'm I'm wondering if it would be comparable to a um, a, a radical in the same way. Expo? Well, I, I think the crossbow is street legal, right? Oh, right. There you go. Uh, there it is possible to make a radical street legal. I think uh, there are some. Mm-hmm. I think you have to enclose the cockpit. I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, the, the, I mean, the crossbow, I've heard it's a bit of a handful to drive. I don't know a lot about it. Uh, but and that must be because it uses a turbo, a turbocharged engine mounted midship um, that sends power to the rear wheels. While the, while the radicals are naturally aspirated engines that I'm sure are, are maybe less peaky than um, Well, no, they're super, they're super peaky. I mean, they're, they're, super they're, peaky. Mo- they're motorcycle engines. Oh, right. Right. You, you read them to 9,000 RPM. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I think that's really cool, and uh, it's definitely something that people should uh, should be interested in because of of just the freedom and the the approach to uh, a track event. I think that's really neat. The way that yeah. you can just decide whether or not um, maybe a high performance school is for you or not. That's really neat. that's really cool. And and I had a great time because the people involved were were excellent that that's something too that i think should be emphasized it's it's not just the cars they were great but the the organization everyone down from the people who picked me up at the airport to peter himself to the the techs who worked on the car to the managers of the of the team itself everyone was was relaxed fun and it was just a good time and that's not always the case when you go to a racing school so i appreciated that very cool. Um, I'm going to change. I'm going to switch gears drastically here. I'm going to talk about a, a new car that I drove uh, a little while ago in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm talking about the 2019 BMW X5. And the X5 is still important these days because um, as it enters its fourth generation, BMW is going kind of all in on the SUV lineup that it has. It has the X1, the X2, all the way up to the X7 which is coming very soon. And the X5 is kind of that like halo product. It's their, it's their top tier SUV right now. And it needs to be very strong at the top end of that um, spectrum because that means it's competing with stuff like the Mercedes-Benz GLE, the Range Rover Sport, and uh, the Porsche Cayenne, I think in some cases too. So BMW has to make sure that they get this SUV just right. And uh, they've done a lot to try to fix that or to, make, to, to reach that sort of level. And um, I think they did a pretty good effort. Wait, I, I just want to ask you a couple questions. Um, yeah, the go first for would it. be, you said that it's it's a, it's the top tier BMW SUV for now, but isn't the X7 supposed to go on sale this year, or is it just debuting this year? I think the production X7 will probably show up um, very soon, probably before the end of the year, and that will mean we're probably going to get to drive it sometime um, next, early next year, I would say. Okay. And the thing, I'm not sure. The X7, as far as I understand, is going to be a three-row vehicle. Um, and while the X5 is a three-row vehicle, I feel like the concession between like a, a two-row and a three-row, sometimes that three-row can just be like a family-friendly vehicle. Uh, a more family-friendly vehicle, while the X5 might be the like um, the luxury-oriented vehicle. Okay. And I would say that mainly because I'm really impressed with just how much um, BMW has improved the interior of the the X5. It's not like the X5 was particularly bad in terms of its interior, but the design has become they've they've really refined and massaged their interior design and make it look made it look more. Um, high tech and luxurious. All the switch gear is very nice. And following in the trends, I know you and I have talked about Volvo in the past being a trendsetter in some ways. You know how you can get that kind of crystal shifter on a Volvo? <laughs> yes. There's something yes. very similar in the new BMW X5. Really? You, this, yeah. you know, the other weird Volvo thing is that like log that you spin to change driving modes, the, like, <laughs> yeah. tex- the textured log on the console. Yeah, yeah. Does, does BMW have that yet? No, they don't. But okay. there is something to be mentioned about the, the drive modes of um, the X5, and I'll do that in a second, but I want to finish talking about the interior. Um, as always, it's loaded with all kinds of, um, I'll call them gimmicky features. You can get the um, gesture controls. One of the less gimmicky features that it has is a very big head-up display that can actually, like the, the graphics are like layered in a way, so that when you're driving on the highway, you can see that your speed limit is, um, let's say, 60, uh, 60 miles per hour. And as you're exiting, it will point out the recommended speed limit on the, on the ramp just behind it before you 
you enter that section where the speed limit is lower. And so you can see what the upcoming speed limit is, for example. And I think that's kind of interesting. It's a new approach to head-up display um, interfaces. The problem I have with the X5 is the same problem I had with the outgoing X5. And that's the cargo and rear seat space of this vehicle are not nearly good enough. When you say, when you say rear seat, do you mean second row? It, yes, because you can get a third row in the yeah. vehicle. It's a very, very poor third row. It's really a desperation move by BMW or it, or the owners of such a car who would really not need to do that kind of um, that kind of concession. I don't think it's it's a useful third row in any way. But I yes, think, I mean I the honest, second row. I, I, sorry to interrupt, but I agree with you. And I think that the reason the X5 has a third row is because they had nothing else that could have a third row and they mm -hmm. wanted to be in that space. And hopefully with the X7, they can offer that third row without compromising the X5 in the process. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that the rear seat space hasn't been improved in any significant way. And I always found that the rear seat space of the X5 was actually lacking in comparison to the X3, which is downright massive in the second row. It, again, this is the, the point I'm trying to make. There's, there's vehicles that are oriented between... Uh, oriented to family-friendly vehicles, and I think that's more like the X3. And then there's like these empty nester, full luxury vehicles like the X5, and these are for you know ballers, man. <laughs> the also the cargo space has actually gone down in comparison to the last year's model, a very Rawr. very min a very minute amount. Um, well, about is, is one cubic foot? Is it more useful? Like, because I know a lot of the times you look at uh, a cargo area and the numbers don't always tell you how useful it really is for stacking stuff in it. Mm -hmm. So, it, do you think that the new X5 has it's more practical the way it's laid out? No, and I'm going to tell you, um, there's two things that that really impact the X5's practicality. One, the, the the overall body design is similar. It's not a very boxy vehicle in that practical sense. I mean, if you look at the outgoing GLE or the Range Rover Sport, those are very boxy, geometric-looking cars. And the X5 has some curves to it, and that will impact the rear seat and cargo space, for sure. For sure, yeah. Um, there's this other thing. It's one of the few cars that use a split tailgate design. So it has, like, this lower tailgate and then a hatch. So you've got this extended element of, of you know, there's motors and, and dampers that support that lower tailgate. And, of course, you have to load your car from a, about a foot away from the actual end of the cargo bay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I will add they've done something kind of unique that I've never seen before. They've got these, like, chrome running boards in the cargo space. This is an, option, this is an optional feature. Everything in a BMW X5 is optional. So <laughs> you've got this chrome running board in the cargo space. And in the middle of the chrome strip is this rubber strip. So when the car is parked, you can put your cargo, let's say you've got cardboard boxes or groceries or something like that, and they will slide on that on that chrome bit, okay? You understand how I mean? It's a slick metal piece. Yes. When you start driving, the rubber piece in that in that chrome strip is like that non-stick, like rubber surface material, and it okay. will raise about a, like a millimeter or two, and will allow your items to stay in place. It's kind of like so. A... <laughs> so what you're saying is it's a cargo net that's not a not cargo net. Exactly what I'm saying. They've also invented a, I don't know if they've invented, but they have an automatic cargo tonneau, a cargo carrier. Um, so we know the cargo carrier, you put, it's like this, usually this big um, cumbersome item that you put in the, in the cargo area of your vehicle and you draw this, this tarp over your groceries. You know what I mean? You've seen this. Cargo before? cover, you mean? Yes, a cargo cover. What did I call it? Carrier. Carver, cover, I meant. Yes. Yes. And you go like you, you draw it over your groceries and then when you open your trunk, it like sometimes some of them automatically retract and they go back and you go, ooh, it's nice. It's revealing the groceries to you. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's it's very, very price is right. But um, the problem is if you don't want that there, what do you do? Like you have to you have to find you have to unlatch it. It's a very, a very unelegant, uh, inelegant way of getting this this cargo cover out of the vehicle. You're, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? It's not the I do, I thing. do. Spill the beans. What's, what did BMW do? <laughs> they have an automatic one that can retract below and behind the rear seats and bet between the rear seats and the cargo area. It just like disappears. It, it, auto it has like a motor. It goes on a track and it goes downwards and hides 
between those two areas. So there's a lot of retraction <laughs> and protrusion going on in the cargo area of this vehicle is what you're telling me, right? Yes. Um, and you know what? The, uh, the, the X5 has improved its driving dynamics in two ways. Um, it's much more off-road oriented than before. I have no idea why because to me, <laughs> the, the, X5, the X5 was the best luxury SUV for the road. It was such a good drive. It's one of my favorite drives. Um, despite how big it is, it felt like a true BMW sedan on the road. And now they've decided that they want to start edging into their competitors' territories, namely Range Rover or Land Rover. And I think that's the key point there. I think a lot of buyers get into a Range Rover and say, well, it's a Range Rover. It can, it can tackle any weather that is thrown at it. And yeah, but, you know, the, if, if – if, okay – no one who owns a Range Rover goes off road. A small, a vanishingly small percentage. I one percent percent agree with you. Yeah. So it, it is BM, BMW can't be counting on that demographic. They have to be counting on the demographic of people who want to have the image of going off road, which would mean they would have to change a whole bunch of things about the X5, right? Right, right. So this is now one. This is, I believe, the first BMW to ever be offered with an off road package. And in stereotypical off in, in stereotypical BMW fashion, do you know what happens when you get the off-road package? Uh, it gets more expensive. <laughs> Besides that, you get a bajillion more controls in the cabin for the vehicle. Okay. Oh, nice. So there's an air suspension as well as an off-road um, mode that you need to select. So you can you these two things these two things are not tied to one another. You can raise the air suspension separate from the off-road mode that you are in. Of course. And does it have a low-range uh, four-wheel drive system? No. Uh-oh. <laughs> no. No, it doesn't. And okay. I don't think it has a, uh, a four-wheel um, lock um, on it. Okay. Yeah. So has the all-wheel drive system been changed in any way for off-roading? I mean, what does the off-road mode do? Does it just, like, is it electronic nannies? Or yeah, how exactly. Does it, work? it changes the way the traction control will react to the vehicle's um, surface conditions, and it will adapt the air suspension to how you're driving uh, and what kind of surface you're driving. So you can select sand, rock, gravel, snow, and it will adjust the, the traction control to those settings. Okay. I will admit this is not the cool part. In fact, they've buried the interesting part of the X5, which, it, you know, it has all the other new technologies that new cars come with. It has rear wheel steering, for example. It has an M Sport differential, which shifts power on the rear axle to the outer wheel to make it, you know, sportier to drive. Um, the cool part about this vehicle is that two axle air suspension, mainly because of the small tricks it can do. If you get a if you get a puncture in your on one of your tires, it will level out the load in a way that reduces the impact on that tire that is punctured. So it's it's like making it's like kind of limping the vehicle in a certain size so that car that tire doesn't have all the weight or doesn't have to support all the weight that it had to before, which I think is really clever. It helps make these are run flat tires, so you've got to uh, maintain their kind of um, structure until you get a replacement there. Yeah. And it can also detect when you are uh, wading in water, and it will automatically close the grills. It'll um, the front the 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 air intake grills in the front, and uh, to ensure that you don't have any mechanical issues in that case too. And it, it, sorry, go on. And there's even uh, a loading mode so that when you are at the when you're trying to get in and out of the vehicle, it'll t it'll lower nice and nice and easily, as well as loading things into the trunk. And is it comfortable to drive on the road? I mean, you said that it was it was oh, your yeah. best. It, it was previously your best vehicle to drive, you know, in this class on the street. So is that still the case, even with all this extra stuff? It's still the case. It does feel a little bit heavier than than before, and um, the engines haven't been terribly um, enhanced in any significant way. There's two engines: uh, a turbocharged inline six, as well as a 4.4 liter turbo V8. The V8 is the more dramatically redesigned engine. It's actually closely related to what's found in the BMW M850, which is the upcoming 8, eight um, series, like, coupe. Keep saying 8. 8. eight. And um, I, we only drove the 6 series, uh, the 6 cylinder, sorry, and it does 0 to 60 in 5.5 seconds. Why, while, is the V8 not ready, or...? Uh, it, it's, the, it's not the volume model, which is what the 6 cylinder is expected to be. Okay. And that will cost about 60, just over 60 two thousand dollars or sixty one thousand dollars for base and then yeah. 
probably another 20,000 in options. For options, that's right. Yeah. I do like this car a lot. I think they've they've enhanced it in ways it didn't need to be enhanced. I was hoping they could have enhanced the rear seats, which is what I thought it needed to get better at. And I've seen, I mean, we talked about the 7 Series last week, the Alpina B7, but the 7 Series. I've seen BMW do good interiors, good rear seat experiences. And this BMW does not have that. It's not even close. Do you think it has something to do with them wanting to protect the X7? If, if they make the X5 too big inside, a family might be in the showroom and say, I don't know if I need to upgrade. Because, I mean, if you look at the 5 Series and the 7 Series, unless you're getting the extended wheelbase, mm-hmm. you know, the 5 is really big inside. Yeah. So maybe they learned a lesson there. I mean, the 7th Series volume is not great, and they probably want to make uh, – they would probably like to have better volume on the X7 because I'm sure it's going to be an extremely profitable vehicle. I, I don't know. That's I, 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 I am excited to see what they do with the X7. If, if the X7 can be that kind of huge luxury limousine, then fine. I'm totally fine with what they're doing with the X5. But to, in my eyes, I see the X7 being a more family-oriented vehicle, and they're probably going to not give it all the luxury features that BMW is really well known for. You think the X7 is going to be less luxurious than the X5? I don't know. I mean, sometimes you look at the Range Rover Sport compared to the normal Range Rover, especially a base Range Rover, does not cut the mustard to me compared to a fully loaded Range Rover Sport. I don't think a base Range Rover has ever been sold in the history of Range Rovers. <laughs> I think I think that is a vehicle that does not exist. Okay, well, you're right. You're definitely <laughs> onto something there. Um, as it stands, it's one of the top cars in its class. I'm very happy, mainly because of its performance on the road. It's got a ton of technology. One of the biggest issues I had with the X5 was the uh, the lane keep assist was a little proactive. It was uh, really aggressive. Wanted to change lanes. Uh, wanted to yank the steering wheel right out of your hands. That had to be turned off. Um, okay. I really like this vehicle, but the new Mercedes-Benz GLE was just revealed at the Paris Motor Show. And it looks very good. It looks like it's going to be a fantastic competitor to this vehicle. And it will time will tell whether or not, you know, the the X5 and the GLE are going to be those locked rivals they've been in the past. Well, you know, um, it, it's interesting that you know, you're driving the uh, X5. I, I'm I'm looking forward to driving it. It's coming out. I'm, it's coming into my driveway in December, and I'm going to spend a couple weeks with it. So I'm looking forward to that. Okay. But I also spent time in a BMW last week that I happen to like very much as well. And it's a vehicle that I've driven in the past, but I don't know what it is about the second time around that has made me so much more enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about the 2018 BMW M2, which, and I'm going to say something that might be controversial, I think it's the most compelling vehicle in the entire BMW portfolio. I think you are right. Um, do BMW i does the i8 count for a compelling? I vehicle? think this is a more compelling car than the i8, okay. despite the fact that I like the i8. I think this is this is this car is the soul of what people think BMW is mm-hmm. and encapsulated in a single vehicle. I think I, I completely agree with you, actually. The the M2 is the closest thing to classic BMW that you can get, I think, in the... In well, the I don't know if I would go that far. I, I think... So I, that kind of brings up a point I wanted to make. When the M2 came out a couple of years ago, it's, it's still a very new vehicle. Mm-hmm. The the knock against it was that it was a parts bin M car in the sense that it didn't have – I believe this was the first M car to not have its own unique engine. Is that correct? Okay, yes. I think that's, I, that's true. Because yeah. I think the M3 and M4 still had an engine that you couldn't – it wasn't just a, a faster version of another engine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that – anyway, they were like, oh, it's not a, it's not a bespoke – M car, uh, it's using a platform that borrows from the, 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 I mean, the two series platform borrows from the three and the four. It's kind of a mishmash, and there was there was a little bit of hand wringing, but it drove very very well. And when I first drove it, I was impressed with it, but I didn't like the steering. I found that the steering right. c- c- calibration in the M two thirty five was somehow better. I remember uh, I said the same thing. I agree with you completely. And they fixed that for 2018. The car, every complaint I had about the car, it's just been evaporated by how awesome the M2 is. It's the right size. Mm -hmm. It's small enough to be fun and practical in a city situation, but big enough inside to be comfortable. I mean, you're not going to put anyone in the rear seats, but why would you want to? It's not why you bought a coupe. And as we pointed out on, on a previous podcast, the rear seats in an M2 coupe are the same size or a little bit bigger, actually, than those in a CLA uh, AMG, <laughs> which is four doors. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, there's there's that to consider as well. But uh, this is really a fantastic automobile to drive. It has nearly 400 horsepower. Mm-hmm. It does zero to 60 in roughly four seconds. Sorry, nearly 400. It has 365. There's a competition package that brings it to 400 that's coming. But I drove the 365 horsepower one. Zero to 60 in 4.1 seconds. It'll do the quarter mile in under 13 seconds, Woo. which is crazy. It does like a 12.7 at 110. Really? That's, yeah, it does. <laughs> that's really impressive. So, it, I mean, that's impressive. It's still slower than the RS3, which does it in 11.9, which is oh, yeah. super crazy. Okay. But uh, it's right up there with like a Camaro SS, which is like 12.3 for the automatic. Okay. Um, well, I mean, the, the RS3, let's talk about the RS3 real quick. That has uh, a five-cylinder turbo, and it makes 400 horsepower. So maybe with yeah, that more power package... All- yeah, it's possible. It's entirely possible. Uh, the the RS3 also traps seven miles an hour faster, so that's pretty impressive. So yeah. straight line speed isn't really the M2's thing. It, it's very very quick in a straight line, but it's really the whole package of the car that's just amazing. It sounds great. Um, it doesn't have a million drive modes. It has comfort, sport, and sport plus. Isn't that beautiful? There you go. Yeah, you just push it up to Sport Plus. You, I would love an exhaust button so the exhaust was on all the time, even when I was in uh, uh, comfort. comfort mode. Yeah. But uh, in Sport Plus, I get really nice exhaust, crackles and burbles and stuff. Um, it, the, the suspension, it, it's rough on a on a road in like we have in Montreal where there's lots of potholes yeah. and stuff. You're, you're going to notice that compared to a regular 2 Series. It is a difference. If that's a problem for you, you should drive it back-to-back with an M235 and see which one... You know, if you're commuting in the car, that, it's it's going to be your butt, so... That's because the M230, the, or the new M240, it's called, has an adaptive suspension that you can... Or adjustable suspension that you can... When you hit comfort mode, it really does actually change the suspension setup a little bit. So, yeah. um, what I want to know is if you had the manual transmission um, M2 or you had the dual clutch. I think it's got a dual clutch. So, I had the dual clutch, oh, and it is man, the, what? it is the it is the worst part of the car. It's great because you can like paddle shift and get crazy uh, engine blipping sounds all the time, which I like. Okay. That that's always a fun visceral experience. But what I don't like about this transmission is for, it's it's confusing to use. There's no park for the transmission. Oh right, I forgot about it. hit it new, put it in neutral and pull the the, the parking brake. No, well, I don't even do that. Well, what you do is if if you stop the car and you put it in neutral, yeah, uh, or drive, whatever you're in, you if you turn off the car, it goes to the first time you hit the stop the the, the turn off button, it'll sometimes just go to neutral, and then you get a message on the driver's display that says car in neutral cannot lock from the outside, and then if you hit it again. It'll it'll turn everything off in the car because BMW has in- instituted this system where you have to hit the button twice to turn everything off, yeah. or or you hit it once on on a regular automatic BMW. You hit it once, you leave the car, you lock the car with the fob, and everything turns off. Right. But you can't do that with this seven speed transmission. It doesn't work. So the problem is whenever I would turn off the car by pushing the button and I would want to put it in park before I got out, most of the time my foot would be on the brake. And if your foot's on the brake when you hit the start button again, it turns the car on. <laughs> yes, I forgot about that. Yeah. So it it, it it was this delicate ballet of foot and hand motions to make sure the car was in park before I could, you know, just leave it and not have it roll away. There's absolutely no need for this. I this mean, is we an complain. ergonomic nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it is also it is also probably not the safest type of system. They do a good job of letting you know it's in neutral. They do they do warn you. But uh, why I've not just have so a park many, button? I've met so many BMW M2 owners who are just con- they just live in their M2 because they're afraid of getting they're out afraid and to leave. unable to to lock it and uh, and leave it. There's no reason that there's not a park button like on every single other car ever created on the market right now <laughs> yeah. with a similar transmission setup. Only BMW does this unusual <laughs> thing. Oh, oh, not only BMW. Uh, you know what other car does this? The Alfa Romeo 4C. Right. <laughs> Which is itself an ergonomic nightmare in every sense of the word. A car I love, but a car which was clearly not designed with human beings in mind. I mean, like, what's uh, going on in the in the design room when they were like, well, should we, uh, okay, time, where should we put the park button? And they're like, no, forget about it. Don't, no, just dead don't. silence. Just, like, dead, everyone's <laughs> quiet, and the guy who said the question just gathers, or, or lady, she gathers up her papers and leaves the room and clears out her desk. <laughs> like, what? How did they come to this conclusion? Like, or did they just forget? Like, I don't know. Like, did they just forget? They're like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, it's already on sale. <laughs> Maybe someone will use the parking brake. Let's hope. 
Um, it's it's I'm, I can overlook that because the rest of the car is super awesome. Right. And I know it sounds gushy to say words like super awesome when objectively objectively evaluating a consumer product, but uh, I was realizing that in Canada, the price differential between a an M2 and a Bullet Mustang, for example, is like five grand. And in favor who's, of in favor of the M2 being cheaper. <laughs> so who's buying? Like I can't imagine that 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 buyer who's like looking at the bullet mustang is like yeah i could have a mustang or i could have this m2 which is fairly unique and um i mean certainly more comfortable don't call the bullet mustang not unique it seems it's a very it's a very eye-catching vehicle and and mustang people will know that that's a special model it looks it it looks good but it looks a lot like the 500 million other mustangs that are on the road green and I'm not. I'm not knocking the bullet Mustang. I'm just saying when you're when you price a Mustang within um, the within spitting distance, ten percent, let's say, mm. of a an excellent street and track car that is very comfortable, has great badge recognition, and is honestly a delight to drive. It really makes you wonder about the market position of Mustang right now. Absolutely. And, and it's not like the Bullet Mustang is the Camaro 1LE either, which is a formidable track weapon. Mm-hmm. This is it's 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 a slightly faster version of the Mustang GT. So I didn't intend for this this segment on the M2 to beat up on the Mustang as much as it has, uh, but I was shocked by that. I mean, the way you describe, I mean, the best way to describe the M2 is it's a car that does conform to you. And I find that's not the case with a lot of sports cars, that you have to get in, you have to readjust yourself, and you have to remember how much power is being sent and how, what kind of delivery is that power um, to the rear wheels. And to me, the M2 does it in a very neat package that makes me feel like I am extracting the most performance for my feeling, my driving style. It feels like it completely wraps around me, and I don't get that at all any kind of Mustang or even a Camaro, which is, has terrible sight lines and I have to accommodate, I have to, I am, I am limited by that fact. And, and they're also much bigger. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're, they're larger vehicles. The M2 is not a super lightweight vehicle, but it is fairly small. And the Mustang is not small anymore and it hasn't really been small for a long time. And that's fine because it's, it's, it's still a decent performer, but uh, it makes a difference. And I will add, though, there's one small thing that's lacking in the M2, and it makes sense because the the 2 Series is kind of the entry-level vehicle in the in the in the BMW lineup. I'm not a huge fan of some of the materials and switch gear that's used in the M2. It just feels a little bit lower grade in, in comparison to um, the other M vehicles, for sure. It's it's what we're talking about with past BMWs. The interior is somewhat plain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not terrible by any means, but it's not flashy. And I, I hate those necessarily... interior door handles. I hate the way they feel. You've got to agree with me on the way the door handles feel. Um, it's you know, <laughs> it, 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 they're not. I, I didn't really spend a lot of time stroking the door handles, you, so yeah. I, I don't know what to say there. I, I'm looking um, on the BMW website right now, and I can only for, for, for to get the U.S. pricing. Mm-hmm. I can only build an M2 competition. Okay. Uh, right now, and that's fifty-eight thousand. And in the U.S., the bullet is forty-six. So there's a much bigger difference in the United States. I think Mustang pricing is a little in- inflated in Canada. Right. But here's something intriguing: um, an M2 competition is about a thousand dollars more than a Mustang Shelby GT350. Okay. They're both around fifty-seven, fifty-eight thousand. So of those two Ooh, vehicles, that's a tough question, man. That's yeah, a that tough that decision. becomes a that becomes a much tougher decision. I, I think the attitude of the cars is very different. I think the Mustang is a little more raw because of the the power plant that it has, mm-hmm. uh, because of the size uh, differential between the cars, and obviously on the street it's not as comfortable. But uh, wh- which one would you take, Sammy? The M the the M2 is one of my favorite vehicles. Like I said, it tr- it truly feels like a sports car. Um, and the GT350, on the other hand, man, that's a weapon. Like that truly is an unbelievable vehicle. It has a lot of grip for for the the type of vehicle it portrays. It looks like a muscle car with a rear wheel drive, like a lot of horsepower going on the rear wheels. But I'm and telling it has, you, it's got a it ton also- of grip. And it also has 526 horsepower versus 400 oh, in the competition nice. package. So it's 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 a unique bespoke engine just to that vehicle. I'm going to go against my usual instinct and say that the GT350 would be the one that I would pick. That's that's a it's an interesting and fairly defensible position, I think. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to add about the M2? 
Uh, not off the top of my head. I, I I honestly think that if you were looking at an M car, it is the best M car that they make right now. It, even the M5 might be faster in a straight line, and the M3 might be bigger inside. You know, we got the four door sedan, but uh, this is the most interesting car to drive that BMW builds yep. overall, and that includes all the M and the non M cars. And it really, I think it it's not necessarily a secret. But I think the fact that it's the entry-level M car kind of masks a little bit how um, truly excellent it is in all categories. I was I I was finding excuses to drive the car, and that's not something that happens very often. Okay. So I even with that transmission, which is is not the best. Uh, it, the, I've driven one with a manual, and I, I enjoyed it. And I I would recommend to you that that's the version of the car that you get as well. Absolutely, I agree with you there. Um, what car are you going to be looking for excuses to drive next week? Uh, next week, I will be regaling you with tales of the 2018 Subaru BRZ TS. I believe okay. we've talked about this briefly on the podcast past. Yep. And uh, I know you're a BRZ owner, Sammy, so mm-hmm. you'll have a lot to a lot to tell us. I'm excited to hear your take on it. I know you hate everything I like, so it'll be a fun conversation to have for sure. <laughs> um, I will be driving the BMW i8 Roadster as well as a Mazda uh, CX-9. Well, that's exciting. Absolutely. I have not driven the i8 Roadster, and I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. And I don't have any disrespectful comments to make about your preferences in association with that. I'm just <laughs> going to say I'm really into your comments, and I, I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, if you are ex- as excited as I am to hear BM, um what's your name? Bench, Ben. My name is BMW. <laughs> yes. It has been a BMW-oriented podcast. If you are as excited... Uh, To hear Ben's comments on the Subaru BRZ TS next week, you should probably subscribe to our podcast. And you should probably subscribe to us anyways because we're awesome, right? Um, You can do that by going to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. We have a bunch of links for you to subscribe using your favorite podcast client. Um, We're there on iTunes, on Google Play, on Google Podcasts, on Pocket Casts, even on Spotify. So be sure to subscribe to us using whatever client that you use on a regular basis. And if you wanted to get in touch with us, you can do that in two ways. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing, as I've done a couple of times in this podcast. Or you can find Ben on the glorious world of Instagram, where he's constantly sharing photos of his tires. You can or other people's tires. Oh right, I don't I don't discriminate. What's your uh, handle on Instagram? It's at hunting Benjamin, and you can also email me Benjamin at benjaminhunting.com, or you can get in touch with us. At unnamedautomotivepodcast.com has a contact uh, form page thing that will get your words into our brain directly. <laughs> it's very invasive, but it's it's effective. I will admit. Exactly. I don't know why I agreed to the <laughs> surgery, but there it is. So thanks again for listening, and we can't wait to share all of the new news and cool cars that we're driving next week with you. Bye!